The new year will bring more lightning-fast changes to artificial intelligence and the ways it's used. This illustrator is horrified at the prospect. The fact that human expression and art is now at risk and on the chopping block is just like super duper scary. Ahead, how Americans are dealing with AI in their work. It's Tuesday, December 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Tensions are rising in the Middle East as Iran-backed militias from Yemen to Iraq to Lebanon exchange fire with Israeli and U.S. forces. We'll have the latest ahead. Plus, college student journalists documenting campus demonstrations, backlash, and even violence tied to the Israel-Hamas war are finding it's the biggest story they've ever covered. And the last Coast Guard lighthouse keeper is getting set to retire. Sally Snowman reflects on her two decades as keeper of Boston Light. It's 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. A top Israeli official is in Washington today to meet face-to-face with Secretary of State Tony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports today's meeting comes as Israel says it expects the war in Gaza to continue for many more months. A spokesperson for the National Security Council says Israel's Minister for Strategic Affairs, Ron Dermer, is attending meetings at the White House. The NSC says the Israeli minister, the U.S. Secretary of State and the U.S. National Security Advisor will discuss the conflict in Gaza and the return of hostages held by Hamas. There are approximately 110 hostages still being held. In recent days, Israel has intensified its bombardment of Gaza, where health officials say more than 20,000 Palestinians have been killed, two-thirds of them women and children. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. The U.S. has conducted airstrikes in Iraq against bases of militia groups backed by Iran. This was in response to a drone attack yesterday that injured three U.S. service members. Three prominent Idaho Republican women have launched a new organization aimed at educating Idaho residents and legislators about birth control. NPR's Kyle Mackey reports. The Idaho Contraceptive Education Network says its mission is to preserve the right to access birth control in Idaho. That's after the state legislature had to amend a bill earlier this year to clarify that birth control pills and IUDs don't count as abortions. Kelly Packer is a former Republican state representative and one of the new group's founding board members. We wanted to make sure that it didn't happen again, you know, that there wasn't that initial misunderstanding and or risk for bad policy. Packer says she thinks most Republicans support the use of contraceptives, but that there's too much confusion between birth control and procedures to terminate pregnancy. Idaho has enacted some of the country's strictest abortion bans since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Kyle Mackey, NPR News, Victor, Idaho. An analysis of wastewater across the U.S. suggests that COVID infections have been rising precipitously in recent weeks. NPR's Nareet Eisenman has more on the story. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, this surge in COVID cases appears to be largely driven by the emergence of the JN.1 variant, which it estimates now accounts for as many as half of all new cases. Officials say this suggests JN.1 is more transmissible and or better at evading our immune systems. But this current surge is nothing like the massive increase in infections caused by the Omicron variant two years ago. And so far, while hospitalizations are up, they're about 50 percent lower than this time last year. Officials also stress that existing vaccines, tests and treatments still work well against this variant. Nareet Eisenman, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The Boston Police Department confirms the Roslindale home of Mayor Michelle Wu was the target of a swatting incident. That's when someone calls in a false report of a crime. WBUR's Carrie Young has more. The fake emergency call came in yesterday around 5.30 p.m. A man called a non-emergency number to say he had shot his wife. When police and paramedics got there, they quickly realized it was the mayor's house. Wu says it was a shock to open the door to see so many flashing lights, but overall, the incident wasn't very disruptive to her family. This is a criminal act that is a misuse of very valuable public safety resources, but for better or worse, my family are a bit used to it by now. It's not the first time this has happened. The Boston Police Department is working to determine who was behind the call. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. A New York City man is facing motor vehicle homicide and other charges for a crash in southeastern Massachusetts that left a 15-year-old boy and his 73-year-old grandfather dead. Police say 41-year-old Adam Gothier was drunk and driving the wrong way on Route 6 in Somerset last night when he crashed head-on into a car on Veterans Memorial Bridge. A third passenger in that car is in critical condition. Two people in a third car suffered minor injuries. Gothier, who is originally from Somerset, was held on $100,000 bail after being arraigned today from a New Bedford hospital. A pro-Israel billboard over I-290 in Worcester has been vandalized with anti-Israel graffiti. The original billboard from nonprofit Jew Belong said, let's be clear, Hamas is your problem too. It was vandalized with a pro-Hamas message. Anyone who might know who vandalized the sign is asked to call Worcester police. Today is the first day of Kwanzaa, the celebration of African-American culture and heritage. Lovely Hoffman is the co-chair of the Boston Kwanzaa Community Association. She tells WBUR's Radio Boston the holiday celebrates seven values, unity, self-determination, collective work, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and faith. The seven principles are based on universal African principles that are practiced throughout various African cultures. And the purpose of these principles is to just allow us to reflect upon who we are and what we need to do as a community to to stay strong. Kwanzaa runs through January 1st. Well, it looks like the sunny weather is going away for most of the holiday week. Tonight will be cloudy with the areas of fog. Temperatures will only go down to about 40 degrees. Upper 40s tomorrow with cloudy skies. Then rain moves in tomorrow night. And Thursday looks rainy and around 50 degrees. It's 42 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. 2023 may go down as the year AI hit the mainstream. It's only been a little over a year since ChatGPT made its public debut, and a lot of people are wondering and worrying about how ChatGPT and other AI could change the way we work. Recently, NPR's labor and workplace correspondent Andrea Shu spoke with one illustrator about his fears and hopes for AI and the dilemmas raised by incorporating it into his work. Baltimore illustrator John DeCampos has strong feelings about AI, dating back to when he discovered that some of his original work had been used to train AI to be smarter. And I'm not famous at all. I'm like a very not well-known dude outside of the world of just Baltimore. He joined the ranks of artists denouncing programs that use AI to create images, pointing out that they were built using work like his scraped from the internet without permission. It's so gross. 
practically overnight, programs like Midjourney and DALI have made it possible for anyone to create highly sophisticated images for fun, but also to make money, or if you're a business, to save money. For Decompos, that's an outrage and a concern. The fact that human expression and art is now at risk and on the chopping block is just like super duper scary to me. Now, DeCampos is hoping to make a living as a board game designer. So yeah, here's some of my stuff here. In his home studio, he shows me his newest release, Black Mold, which he describes as a survival horror escape. It's played with dice and decks of cards, adorned with drawings sprung from his own mind and hand. This game is uh, massive. There's easily 50 or 60 hours worth of illustration work in this box. It's work that Decompass knows can be done and is being done elsewhere by AI. As disgusted as he is by that, even he has found a use for AI. Nowadays, he uses ChatGPT to write updates for his Kickstarter followers and social media posts to market his games. He starts by dictating instructions into his phone. I'll say like, these are the qualities of the game that we're selling take all of this information, melt it down into 15 words or less. Give me five different versions written to sell this product on Instagram. He'll take what he likes, make a few edits, and mission accomplished in a fraction of the time. DeCampo says he doesn't have the same ethical issues using AI to generate text as he does with images. And I think that that's probably a lot of implicit bias. And I'm trying to grapple with being maybe a little hypocritical for using generative text. I'm kind of figuring it out. All right, Andrea Shu is here to talk with us about how workers are grappling with the role of AI in their jobs as they integrate that technology and how we can gain perspective instead of panic around the impact of AI on our work. Hey, Andrea. Hey. Fascinating to hear the ambivalence of John DeCampos there as he resents AI and also uses it in his daily life. Yeah, and Ari, to take you a little bit behind the scenes for a minute, probably the first half hour or even 45 minutes of our conversation was all about the ways that he sees AI ruining art. And then he suddenly took that turn and started talking about how, as a small business owner, he was finding ChatGPT to be a real time saver. Of course, as you heard, he's now struggling with how he feels about that because he knows there's also artistry in writing and writers out there who are concerned about their future. So I really appreciated his honesty and realized that this is what all of us are going to be grappling with. It's less if we are going to have to incorporate AI into our work and more how we do it and how we can be thoughtful about it. And we're talking about jobs in the creative space, which are not the kinds of occupations that have historically faced existential threats from new technologies. That's right. You know, over history, we've seen how advancements in computers and robotics have replaced a lot of manual jobs. Factories used to have many times more workers than they do now. I've been in factories where all you see are people pushing buttons. So one big change is that the AI innovations we're seeing, these tools like ChatGPT, they are more likely to impact knowledge workers than manual workers. Yeah, the economic researchers at the job site Indeed.com put out this fascinating report recently that examined which jobs are the most and least likely to be impacted by AI. They looked at how good AI tools are at doing different tasks involved in all these different jobs. So at one end, you have driving jobs. Right now, they face the lowest risk of being replaced because while AI might be okay or pretty good at some of the skills required for those jobs like communication, it's rated poor at actually operating a vehicle. Huh. So even though there's lots of talk about autonomous vehicles, at this point, AI is not up to the task of driving a car. 
Yeah, exactly. Now, some of the other jobs that AI wouldn't be good at right now are things like caregiving. You can't have an AI watching a room full of toddlers. Also, food preparation and nursing. Hmm. Well, what are the jobs on the other end that are most likely to be impacted by AI? Well, software developers top the list. The Indeed researchers found that generative AI is good or excellent at 95% of the skills in software development job postings. And I've talked to workers in this field who say it is saving them a ton of time already because the AI is better and faster at writing code than they are. And another occupation that appears at risk, um, legal assistance. We had several people from law firms respond to a call out that we did about how AI was changing their work. And they told us about how AI can help with document review. You can ask ChatGPT to summarize mountains of documents that would take days to go through. AI can also comb through case law and build an argument. But Ori, of course, there are hazards to outsourcing this kind of work to AI. And you might recall there was a New York lawyer who was sanctioned earlier this year after he was caught citing bogus cases in a lawsuit against an airline. You know, in, in court, he told the judge he had used ChatGPT for legal research and hadn't bothered to double check the bot's work. Yeah, I remember that case. Okay, so for those of us who fear that AI might come for our jobs in the future, what can we do? to protect ourselves, to remain needed. Yeah, well, I took some advice from someone else who responded to our call out, Ethan Kissel in Michigan. He produces television commercials for local businesses. He's involved in everything from going to meet with the clients to discuss what they want, to writing the scripts, to shooting the video, bringing in voice actors, and then editing it all together. So I was basically from the moment the project started to the end of creating the commercial. And he pointed out to me that, you know, any one of those jobs could be at risk if that one job was all you did. But he's not so afraid for his own job because, you know, he says, I'm a jack of all trades. And I also got another tidbit from Jeffrey Garcia. He works at a tech company in a project management role. He told me his bosses have not told him that he needs to be using AI yet, but he's just taken it upon himself to experiment with various tools, to do things like start project plans, to do some of the data analytics that he does as part of his job. And he's finding, wow, this is really helping me be more efficient. And he's concluded that it's prudent for him to stay on top of where this technology is and you know, understand how it's changing his profession so that he can make sure his skills remain relevant. I think it's a matter of finding ways to kind of evolve and adapt with the technology. When you put it that way, it sounds not all that different from previous technological innovations from computers to the internet, where it's just a matter of figuring out how to make it make your work better rather than replace you. Exactly. NPR's Andrea Shu, thanks for your reporting. Thank you, Ari. Last night, the U.S. carried out airstrikes on militias in Iraq in response to an attack that wounded three U.S. service members hours before. This comes as there's been an uptick in fighting between Iran proxies and the U.S. and Israel since the start of the Gaza war. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has been covering these developments from her base in Rome. Hey, Ruth. Hey. So what can you tell us about these latest attacks in Iraq? Well, President Biden ordered these airstrikes against three locations the U.S. says are used by Iranian-backed groups in the country. And like you said, you know, these U.S. airstrikes are intended as a response for a drone attack yesterday on an airbase in northern Iraq. That critically wounded one U.S. service member and, and injured two others. And the U.S. has about 
2,000 troops in Iraq and about 900 in northern Syria. And the Pentagon says it's recorded dozens of attacks, well over 90 on its forces in these two countries in recent weeks by Iranian-backed groups. And Ruth, what is the Iraqi government saying about these airstrikes that the U.S. has conducted on its soil? Well, the Iraqi prime minister's office came out with quite a harshly worded statement condemning the U.S. airstrikes. These strikes apparently killed one militiaman, but also wounded at least 18 other people, including, the Iraqi government says, some civilians and Iraqi police. And they called the strikes a clear hostile act and said they, quote, undermine the bilateral relations between Iraq and the U.S. The complexity here is that the Iraqi government is really struggling to balance the ties it has to both the U.S. and to Iran. And the Iraqi government is warning that these types of exchanges of fire between the US and Iran are destabilizing for the country. And you know, Juana, it's not just happening in Iraq. We've got Houthi militias from Yemen that are linked to Iran firing on ships in the Red Sea. The US is now leading a naval coalition to try to defend these ships. And then you have Israel and the Lebanese militia Hezbollah, which is also backed by Iran, trading fire almost daily. And that's led to the evacuation of thousands of civilians on both sides of that Lebanese-Israel border. Is this something that could spiral out of control and lead to confrontation between the U.S. and Israel on one side against Iran? Well, concern about that has really gone up since Iran says Israel killed a senior advisor in Iran's Revolutionary Guards, the IRGC, in Syria this week. You know, Iranian state media have quoted both the president of Iran and the IRGC as saying that Israel will, quote, pay the price for his killing. For now, analysts seem to think that neither Israel nor the US nor Iran really wants to see this spiral into a bigger conflict. So far, these attacks and responses have been relatively limited. Um, But this is an extremely volatile situation and it could easily spiral out of control. NPR's Ruth Sherlock, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll hear from Sally Snowman, who is retiring as the longtime keeper of Boston Light. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont. Celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. On Wall Street, stocks ended on an upswing this day after Christmas. The Dow and the S&P ticked up 0.4 percent. NASDAQ gained half a percent. In local business news, despite rising gas prices nationally, the average price of gasoline in Massachusetts dropped three cents in the past week. Today's statewide average stands at 3.23 a gallon, according to AAA. That's 17 cents lower than a month ago. Outside of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, the Boston area has the highest gas prices in the state. The Springfield area has the lowest. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals. With over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples, cambridgenaturals.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. 
We'll have lots of clouds tonight, fog in some areas. We'll see lows in the upper 30s. Tomorrow will be gray and cloudy in the upper 40s, about 50 degrees on Thursday with rain, mostly cloudy Friday. We might see some more rain that day. Highs will be in the mid-40s Friday. Then a chance of rain to start the weekend Saturday morning, then partly sunny around 40 degrees. It is 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, a new original drama following the rise of a Hollywood icon. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In Gaza, the World Health Organization says that disease may ultimately kill more people than direct military action. The group says rates of infectious diseases are, quote, soaring. Already, over 100,000 cases of diarrhea have been reported. NPR's Ari Daniel has this story about the efforts to spot and prevent outbreaks in an increasingly desperate situation. In times of war and of peace, tracking illnesses is crucial for keeping a population healthy. Rick Brennan is a regional emergency director with the WHO. It's a way of detecting the emergence of diseases that can result in an epidemic very, very quickly. Public health experts told me that before the war, despite the Israeli blockade, Gaza's health system was doing a pretty good job. Solid vaccination rates, three dozen hospitals, and effective disease surveillance. There was a reasonably good system to pick up cases of infectious diseases, to transfer the specimens, to test them in the laboratories, and then implement control measures. But since the October 7th Hamas attack, that system, along with the rest of Gaza's health infrastructure, has crumbled amidst Israel's bombardment and ground offensive. That's because Israel has accused Hamas of harboring fighters and weapons in and around hospitals and under them in tunnels, putting them in the line of fire. The WHO says only a quarter of Gaza's hospitals are partially functional. Tahrir al-Sheikh is a pediatrician in Gaza. She was working at al-Nasr Children's Hospital until the war displaced her to the south, where she's been offering medical help. She spoke with our producer, Anas Baba. We used to culture bacteria in Gaza, prescribe medication based on the results. Now, we can't do cultures or anything and the infections are spreading. She's seeing brutal cases of diarrhea. I treated a four-month-old baby who had 20 bowel movements in a day, along with a torrent of respiratory diseases. I've had cases that didn't respond to any treatment, but I can't say they have COVID. I can't diagnose it because I don't have the equipment. All this disease is being accelerated by the brew of conditions inside Gaza right now. Marwan al-Homs directs the Muhammad Yusuf al-Najjar Hospital in Rafah. Wherever there's overcrowding, these epidemics exist, inside shelters, even in tiny apartments where the number of inhabitants is 35 people. Plus, there's the colder winter weather and a lack of clean water, sanitation, and proper nutrition, services that are difficult to secure under Israel's near-total siege of Gaza. It's just sort of a cauldron of possibility of infectious disease. 
Amber Alian is Deputy Program Manager for Doctors Without Borders in the Palestinian Territories. If you have no access to antibiotics because you can't get to the doctor, then something that's so simple to treat can turn into something quite deadly. This really just is an infectious disaster in waiting. Which the WHO says could endanger even more lives than combat. So global health groups are racing to ramp up disease surveillance efforts in Gaza to avoid a cholera outbreak like in Syria or Haiti or a measles outbreak like in Somalia. A WHO official recently traveled from Jerusalem to Gaza to bring rapid diagnostic tests for hepatitis and cholera. They're hoping to resuscitate one or two of the local laboratories in Gaza that did pathogen screening before. In addition, says Rick Brennan, We are looking at options to even bring a mobile laboratory from outside. Meanwhile, Brennan says he's relieved that some of the really terrible diseases, like measles or cholera, haven't surfaced yet in Gaza, in part due to pre-war vaccinations. If we get an influenza outbreak into those massively overcrowded shelters, if we've got Shigella dysentery, that could rip through a community very quickly. And to be honest, you know, I'm grateful that we've got to this point. We've got increased rates, but we haven't had a deadly outbreak yet. Whether that good fortune lasts isn't certain, but health experts say testing and surveillance are crucial for identifying the first handful of cases of something sinister, ideally while it can still be contained. Ari Daniel, NPR News. Some indigenous chefs are now using mainly ingredients that are native to North America. As Elizabeth Caldwell with KWGS in Tulsa, Oklahoma reports, these chefs are determined to show the benefits of indigenous cuisine. This is kind of where we stock all of our goodies. In her pantry in Tulsa, Cherokee chef Nico Albert-Williams is showing off her supply of wild rice. She has several tubs that she bought directly from the Red Lake Band of Chippewa in Minnesota. You know, they go out in a canoe and they have uh, canes and they knock the rice into the canoe. After the rice is emptied out of the canoe, it's parched over a wood fire. They toast it and roast it, and that's how they dry it and get it um, ready to store. There's some other prizes in her pantry, hominy from a Haudenosaunee farmer in South Carolina and Yopon holly tea, which comes from one of the only caffeinated plants in North America. Yopon holly is a traditional ingredient in a lot of our medicines. When you're making teas and things like that, it's, it's kind of going to be the next big thing. Today, the wild rice is important. Albert Williams, who is a caterer, uses it in a lot of different dishes. And I might even add just a scotch more oil. She starts to saute some dried cranberries with mushrooms, then adds cooked wild rice to the pan and liquid left over from boiling it. So the the technical term for that is that we're deglazing the pan. The liquid helps loosen tasty brown bits off the bottom of the skillet and plumps up the dried cranberries. So like the cranberry juice mixes with that rice cooking liquid, mixing with the juice from the mushrooms, and it's really creating like this really beautiful little sauce in the pan. She piles the filling into lettuce wraps. These appetizers are featured at a gathering sponsored by the University of Tulsa to showcase indigenous foods and indigenous chefs. Here, she serves the wraps on plates made of pressed palm leaves that can be composted. Because it's all 
there's nothing added to it. It's just a lease. Albert Williams takes the stage to tell the audience why she started using ingredients like wild rice. She didn't grow up eating these foods, she says. But as she gained experience as a chef, she started to appreciate the benefits. We have all of these health disparities in our communities, but those health disparities are not just in the indigenous community. They are countrywide. People are, are suffering from these things. And the ways that we heal ourselves also heal the planet when we make those good decisions. Like eating foods that grow around us, which she says is the heart of indigenous cooking. Another chef at the gathering is Sean Sherman. He grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, watching his community eat government canned fruits and vegetables. Then he became a chef. Just working really hard, learning about all the foods, learning about a lot of Eurocentric foods, and then getting to a point of realizing the complete absence of indigenous anything out there, and then starting to work towards that. Today, he runs a restaurant in Minneapolis called Awamni, which roughly means place of the falling, swirling water. So we took away colonial ingredients, removing dairy, wheat flour, cane sugar, beef, pork, chicken, really focusing on the bounty that we have around us. His menu instead has venison, bison, corn, sweet potatoes, and pumpkin custard. When thinking about food, Sherman says people should appreciate what nature has to offer. The first step, he says, is getting outside. Creating a relationship with the plants, with the trees, like finding the indigenous names for those plants and those trees, and just seeing the world differently. For these indigenous chefs, seeing the world differently is part of their recipes. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Caldwell in Tulsa. It's NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, student journalists covering the biggest story of their young lives, campus demonstrations, backlash, and even violence related to the Israel-Hamas war. Skies will be cloudy tonight with fog in places, lows nearing 40 degrees. It'll be cloudy tomorrow with temps in the upper 40s. Thursday will have rain and temperatures around 50. Then a chance of rain Friday, getting a little cooler in the mid-40s. It's 42 degrees in Boston with some fog at 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com and Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights. Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. I'm Robin Young. While Michigan made ballot drop boxes mandatory in 2023, North Carolina banned them. We'll look at changes in voting laws. For some Americans, voting is going to be more accessible in 2024 than it has ever been before. While other Americans are going to experience a lot of new barriers to the ballot box. Next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm John Stempen. The war in the Gaza Strip may grind on for months. That's the grim assessment from the Israeli chief of staff, Herzi Halevi, who spoke with reporters today. Halevi says there's no shortcut to dismantling a terrorist organization like Hamas. A U.N. human rights official expressed alarm at the intensification in fighting over the past couple of days. The U.S. military struck three targets in Iraq today following unmanned drone attacks on U.S. service personnel yesterday that injured three service members, one critically. 
NPR's Tamara Keith says President Biden ordered the assault. According to a statement from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, Biden ordered, quote, necessary and proportionate strikes on three facilities used by Kata'ib Hezbollah and affiliated groups in Iraq. The U.S. military's Central Command said the strikes destroyed the targeted facilities and likely killed a number of militants. A large winter storm system is disrupting post-Christmas travel in a half dozen states across the central U.S. Here's Matt Bloom from Colorado Public Radio. Strong winds and blowing snow shut down stretches of several interstate highways through Colorado, Nebraska, and South Dakota Tuesday morning. Air travel has seen some impacts, too. Denver International Airport recorded over 200 delays. National Weather Service forecaster Kenley Bonner in Denver says the storm will continue to cause havoc this week. It's going to go into Iowa, Missouri, and northern Minnesota as it moves out of here. Some cities in eastern Colorado recorded over seven inches of snow so far from the storm. Authorities so far haven't reported any major injuries or deaths. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom in Denver. And on Wall Street, the Dow closed up 159 points. The Nasdaq was up 81, and the S&P 500 up 20. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts cities and towns have received more than $50 million from opioid-related settlements since July 2022. But as WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports, only a small fraction of that funding has been spent to address the drug overdose crisis. The first annual reports from municipalities show most are still deciding what to do with payments that will continue for nearly two decades. Boston received $4.7 million and expects to announce its plan next month. Cambridge, Springfield, and New Bedford all got more than a million dollars and haven't spent anything yet. Worcester is the only major city that used the money right away for street-based mental health and recovery programs. Some municipal leaders say they are reviewing data and community input to make sure their money is invested wisely. But some families and community advocates want faster action because the number of people dying after an overdose is higher than ever. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. The State Firefighters Union and nine firefighter locals are calling on Boston City Council to accept a federal counterterrorism security grant. The union sent a letter to the council today requesting approval of more than $13 million from the Department of Homeland Security. They say the money is needed to prevent and respond to terrorism threats, including chemical, biological, and nuclear attacks. The city council failed to accept the funding earlier this year over a concern the funds could be used for surveillance. A city spokesperson says the mayor plans to refile the grant in the new year. Leaders in the Boston food scene are joining forces for a new initiative meant to highlight the diversity in the city's food scene. The effort led by Meet Boston will spotlight chefs, neighborhoods, and culinary events throughout the city. Its goal is to attract new visitors who place an emphasis on local cuisine while traveling. David O'Donnell is among those leading the effort for Meet Boston. He says more than two dozen Boston-area chefs are taking part. We want it to be their story representing Boston's story, whether it be their background, the cuisine that they're most interested in serving, how their craft has evolved, what role Boston has played in that evolution and in the development of them as culinary personalities. Chefs and restaurateurs behind establishments including Mita, Sarma, and Alcove are among those taking part in the endeavor. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. 
Temperatures will only dip to about 40 degrees tonight. It'll be cloudy and foggy in some areas. The clouds will stick around tomorrow. Highs will be in the upper 40s. Rain will move in tomorrow night. Then it will stay rainy for Thursday, a bit warmer that day, around 50 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For the first time in 22 years, women are leading a major fundraising operation for Latino Democrats in Washington. These women say they bring a critical perspective to a race for Latino votes in an election where abortion will play a major role. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has more. Congresswoman Linda Sanchez is visiting a busy coffee shop in her home district in Los Angeles County. She's head of the political arm of the Democrats' Congressional Hispanic Caucus. This coffee shop is part of an incubator for Latino businesses. Sanchez wants to be an incubator for Latino votes. I'm on this mission to convince Latinas that we need more of them in Congress if we want the Congress to look like the America that it's supposed to represent. She's part of a larger team of women leading the political action committee. We want to defend our incumbent and get more Latinos and Latinas elected to Congress. That's Bullpack Executive Director Victoria McRory back in Washington, D.C. She argues having women at the forefront of their organization is key heading into the 2024 elections, especially as they focus on voters who could swing control of Congress and the White House. Latinas are critically important to our efforts, not only in taking back the House, but also in defending the majority in the Senate and um, defending the White House as well. Sanchez and McGrory argue that Latino voters were fundamental for Democratic victories in the 2022 midterm elections and play an increasingly important role in battleground states such as Pennsylvania and Arizona. North Carolina Congressman Richard Hudson knows that quite well. Hudson chairs the National Republican Congressional Committee, the political arm of the House GOP. He thinks Democrats have it wrong on Latino voters. Well, they are a huge voting bloc, and they're certainly a a bloc that Republicans continue to do better with because I think we share values, and I think we'll continue to do our outreach. We expect them to be a big part of our winning coalition. Hudson argues that Democrats have taken Latino voters for granted. Republicans want to take advantage of that to win in more House districts in places like Texas, California, and Florida. Those targets also include Pennsylvania and Oregon, where smaller populations of Latino voters could make the difference on who controls congressional chambers with razor-thin margins. Anything else for you guys? But back at the L.A. County coffee shop, Sanchez says Republicans are missing a glaring obstacle this upcoming election cycle. They continue to have in their blind spot the fact that reproductive rights are a very motivating issue. In surveys, a growing majority of Latinos similar to other groups in the country see access to abortion as a top issue and that abortion should be legal in most or all cases, a key value for Democrats. 
Oregon Congresswoman Andrea Salinas knows that firsthand. The freshman Democrat saw abortion play out as a major issue in her first election. Oregon has always been very strong in defending reproductive rights. Salinas was the first Latina elected to Congress from Oregon, and her district includes the state's largest share of Latinos. Bold Pack's members argue that although Democrats lost the House in 2022, they defeated plans for a red wave. McGrory says that old playbook, plus a bigger wave of Latino voters expected to turn out in the election year, will spell blue winds across the country come November. I think we will absolutely be talking about how Latinos showed up, how they mobilized their community, and they got to the polls and they voted for Democrats. Democrats may be bullish about winning Latino voters, but that does not necessarily guarantee a path to a majority. Claudia Grisales, NPR News. It's the end of an era for U.S. Coast Guard lighthouses and their keepers. The last remaining official lighthouse caretaker retires this week from Boston Light. That is the first lighthouse built in what would become the United States. NPR's Tovia Smith has more. Even as a kid, Sally Snowman was totally into nature, as she puts it, talking to the trees and the rocks. When she was 10, her Coast Guard dad took her to visit Boston Light on a tiny island in Boston Harbor. Snowman says she immediately fell in love and began fantasizing about growing up to be a lighthouse keeper herself. And amazingly, you know, that happened. So it's sort of metaphysical type of thing that I felt something so deeply in my heart and in my cells and the space between the cells that it came into fruition. It's a fairy tale come true. Boston Light was built in 1716 and then rebuilt after the Brits blew it up in 1776 on their way out of Boston. It's still used as a navigational aid. The Coast Guard maintains the light, which is now automated, and the foghorn, but looking after the rest, from cleaning cobwebs and bugs from the tower in the boathouse to mowing the grass, became Snowman's job when she was hired in 2003 to be Boston Light's 70th caretaker. She's also the first woman on the job, and known for dressing in period costume. When people say, well, what do you do? I do light housekeeping. <laughs> that undersells her just a bit. Snowman has written three books about the lighthouse, and she worked there as a volunteer for nearly a decade before officially going on the payroll for two more. It all left her plenty of time to sit in her favorite spot on the circular deck around the top of the tower, her feet dangling over the edge, mesmerized by the 360-degree panorama. Seeing the far expanse of the universe, the sunrises, the sunsets, they are phenomenal. To me, they were never the same twice. The sea was never the same twice. The cloud cover was never the same. It was like dying and going to heaven. <laughs> There were a couple of times she thought she might have died for real, like in 2013 when she stayed in the lighthouse keeper's house for what she thought was going to be a regular old nor'easter, but turned out to be a full-blown blizzard. Which is a hurricane with snow. And the sea just pounding on the back of the house and <laughs> every window. But Snowman was more exhilarated than afraid. You know, if the house got washed off the island during the storm when I was asleep, what a way to go. 
Rough seas and storms have continued to erode the tiny island, coming precariously close to the lighthouse. In 2018, Boston Light failed an inspection, so Snowman could no longer live there and was limited to making day trips. Now at 72, she's retiring just as the Coast Guard's preparing to sell the lighthouse, as it's done with others around the nation. In most cases, they've been taken over by the National Park Service. Snowman gets wistful thinking about the change. She seems to be reassuring herself as much as anyone else when she says leaving now is the right thing to do. My husband Jay and I, we didn't have any kids. We had a lighthouse. And it's like the child going off to college that you're letting it go to have another experience and to find out who they truly are. Well, here it is. I'm letting loose Boston Light to see what its next journey is. Snowman hopes to keep working at Boston Light as a volunteer tour guide. For now, she leaves decades full of memories and mementos, like the wood plaque that hangs in the keeper's house where she used to live. It was the shape of a lighthouse that said, we'll leave the light on for you. A promise that the nation's last official lighthouse keeper has kept. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's been a busy year for America's top diplomat. Secretary of State Antony Blinken crisscrossed the Middle East as war raged in Gaza. He traveled to Ukraine and tried to rally the world and U.S. lawmakers to continue backing Kyiv in the face of Russia's invasion. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman with more. The images out of Gaza and the devastating civilian death toll have led most countries to demand a ceasefire, and many see this as America's war, too, as the U.S. backs Israel. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says it's striking that no one is making demands of Hamas, which started this latest conflict with its attack on Israel on October 7th. How can it be that there are no demands made of the aggressor and only demands made of the victim? He says the U.S. has been working hard to get more aid into Gaza and is encouraging Israel to move quickly to what he calls a low-intensity phase of the conflict, more targeted operations with fewer civilians killed. We continue to believe that Israel does not have to choose between removing the threat of Hamas and minimizing the toll on civilians in Gaza. It has an obligation to do both, and it has a strategic interest to do both. And he says he's talking to everyone in the region about how to bring lasting peace and security to Israelis and Palestinians. From his Arab counterparts, he says he still hears a common refrain. They are looking for American leadership, and we're working to provide that. Speaking at his year-end news conference, Secretary Blinken also made the case for continued U.S. support to Ukraine. Our support hasn't just helped Ukrainians. Ninety percent of the security assistance that we provided to Ukraine has been spent here in the United States, benefiting American businesses, workers, communities. He says Russia is weaker and NATO is stronger, but says President Vladimir Putin is betting that political divisions in the U.S. will block continued aid for Ukraine. We have proven him wrong before. We will prove him wrong again. The Biden administration also remains focused on China. Blinken went there in June to restart high-level diplomacy, months after an earlier trip was scuttled over the U.S. shootdown of a suspected Chinese spy balloon. He says the U.S. and China are now taking practical steps to manage their competition. We secured China's cooperation on reducing the flow of precursor chemicals that are fueling the synthetic drug crisis. We're restoring military-to-military communications at all levels 
to reduce the possibility of miscalculation and conflict. And we've agreed to discuss risks and safety around artificial intelligence. It's a long to-do list for Secretary Blinken as the U.S. heads into an election year and the conflict in Gaza draws much of the world's attention. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. In 2023, there have been more than 100 NPR Tiny Desk concerts, from legends like Smokey Robinson to newer acts like Olivia Rodrigo. Looking back on on this year at the Tiny Desk, in my opinion, this was the, the best year that we've ever had. Our colleagues at NPR Music share their top picks from this year. Find out who made the cut tomorrow on All Things Considered. Listen on the radio, online, or on your smart speaker. Just ask for NPR or your local member station by name. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up just after the top of the hour, from rocket explosions to asteroid samples, we'll have a roundup of space news from 2023. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Parents, join us Monday, January 8th at City Space for a conversation with Jack Zhang, chef and stay-at-home dad, whose viral videos of cooking for his two-year-old son have inspired a new cookbook. Tickets at wbur.org slash events. Tonight will be cloudy with some areas of fog. We'll have lows around 40 degrees. Upper 40s tomorrow with cloudy skies. Thursday looks rainy and around 50 degrees. A chance of rain Friday, otherwise mostly cloudy with highs in the mid-40s. Then Saturday, maybe some rain to start, partly sunny after that with temperatures around 40 degrees. It's 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Olin College of Engineering, seeking applicants to join their community of talented, curious, energetic students and faculty. Olin.edu. Hi there, it's Margaret Lowe, the CEO of WBUR. As this year comes to an end, I'm filled with gratitude for you, for your time, your trust in us, and your enduring support. I hope you can't imagine a day without WBUR because we can't imagine a day without you. If you haven't had a chance to give this year and you'd like to, please go to WBUR.org and click on the donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Thank you and happy, happy holidays. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Tensions have been high on U.S. college campuses ever since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel and the resulting war in Gaza. For student journalists on those campuses, it's a huge story and a tricky one to cover when friends and classmates are so deeply divided. Aubrey Uhas of member station WWNO spoke to student journalists at Tulane University in New Orleans about how it's going. 
Hannah Levitin wasn't planning to cover a protest the Thursday before Halloween. She didn't even know people were gathering in support of Palestinians until she stumbled on it. As a journalist, you're never off the clock. And so I walked into that rally and instantly we kind of realized this is something that people are going to talk about for months to come, years to come maybe. Levitin is a senior at Tulane, a private and highly selective school in New Orleans. She says the rally started out peaceful. But as counter-protesters gathered, both sides started hurling insults. A video posted to social media and referenced in Levitin's reporting shows a red pickup truck pulling into the middle of the street between the two groups. Someone standing in the bed of the truck holds a lighter up to an Israeli flag. Another person runs up and pulls the flag away. A fight erupts. Tulane's police department confirmed the details of what happened at the rally. Three students were assaulted and several people were arrested, none of them students. The story Levitin and her classmates published that day marked a turning point for Tulane's student paper, the hullabaloo. The conflict in the Middle East has led to demonstrations, backlash, and even violence on college campuses, from New York City to Cambridge, Massachusetts to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Even college leaders have come under fire, notably the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania, who faced withering criticism for their testimony on Capitol Hill about anti-Semitism. For student journalists, what's happening on their campuses is likely the biggest story they've ever covered. Things are especially complicated at Tulane. I mean, people literally call it Tulane. About a third of students at Tulane identify as Jewish, according to the school's Hillel chapter. That includes Levitin. The school doesn't track how many students identify as Muslim or any other religion. There is a Muslim student group, but they didn't respond to NPR's requests. Even though many students have personal ties to Israel, opinions on the Israel-Hamas war vary widely. Levitin says not everyone on the pro-Israel side was at the rally for the same reason. There are people who are standing on the pro-Israel side, like against Hamas or against anti-Semitism, or they're standing on the pro-Israel side because they support Netanyahu, and you don't know unless you speak with them. Which is exactly what she and her co-reporter Lindsay Rule did for both sides of the protest. They made a point of recording the interviews. Here's Rule, then Levitin. We talked to a guy who was sobbing. I mean, it was so, I almost cried like interviewing people on both sides. It became apparent as we were going through those interviews that these are, these are things that you need to hear because the emotion is something that you can't read in print. So they decided to make the paper's first ever podcast. This is Breaking Waves, the Tulane Hullabaloo's new podcast. It puts students with different opinions side by side like Anaya Rogers, Rachel Dan, and Gabriel Rudelman. Israel doesn't need support. They have the U.S. support. Palestinian people, people of color, Muslim people, my people, we need, we need the support that we so desperately haven't gotten yet. I am actually not pro-Israeli government, but when I saw that this protest and the Instagram behind this protest were posting, honestly, propaganda that had anti-Semitic tropes, I felt like I needed to stand against that. It's scary to be a Jew right now. We're not safe. Like, if Israel wasn't formed, like, if they took Israel away from us when they tried years ago when they attacked, we would all be dead. None of us would be standing here right now. Reaction to the podcast and the paper's other coverage has been generally positive. The rule says some classmates saw her differently, 
after she was seen at the pro-Palestinian demonstration. Not everyone understood her role as a journalist. I was talking to some girl, and she mentioned that many people were texting her because they saw me on one side, and they were hurt and offended that I was on that side. It, it's kind of frustrating because it's, as a journalist, read my, like, read the story. Levitin says social media is making the problem worse, especially college-specific platforms like Fitz. She says it's become a place where misinformation is framed as news, and that's further entrenched students in their views. We're 18 to 21. How can you possibly have made up your mind and decided that you are standing on one side and you are unwavering, you are not going to ever consider speaking to people on that other side? She says the paper and the university have a chance to bring students together, to listen and learn from one another. It's an opportunity they can't afford to miss. For NPR News, I'm Aubrey Uhas in New Orleans. Here's a question you're likely to hear this time of year. Do you have your New Year's resolution yet? Look, no pressure. It's winter, holidays are exhausting, and you have our permission to do nothing whenever that's possible. Indeed. But if you want to set a goal for 2024, NPR's Life Kit has published a list of 50 ideas from past episodes. Kavitha George didn't really have a choice when it came to hers. As host of Alaska Morning News in Anchorage, she started her work day at 5 a.m., so she needed to become a morning person. It's tough to wake up in the dark and head to work in the cold, knowing that daytime is still several hours away. <sighs> this is kind of the worst part of my day. I'm worried that no matter how long I do this, it's always going to feel a little jarring when I wake up this early. Anyways, time to get going. I've pared my morning routine down to the bare bones to conserve every ounce of sleep I have. I brush my teeth and put on several warm layers. I eat a single pancake, I keep a batch ready to go in my freezer at all times, and then I'm out the door. I try to sing something punchy in the car to wake up my vocal cords. Occasionally I met with some of Alaska's urban wildlife on the drive. A moose ran alongside my car as I pulled into the station last week. And by the time I get to the studio, I'm usually feeling awake. This is, state <clears throat> this is statewide news from Alaska Public Media. I'm Kavitha George. Another popular resolution is to cut back on alcohol. Here's NPR's Allison Aubrey with some tips. Aaron White of the National Institutes of Health says it may be tough to follow through if you haven't thought about what you're going to replace your alcohol habit with. Say you're in the habit of having a glass of wine every night at 6 o'clock. Instead, at exactly 6, do some yoga, go for a walk, watch something funny. Replace the behavior with something that is healthier and more sustainable. A dry month may lead you to rearrange your social calendar or to pick people to hang out with who will be supportive. Elizabeth Greener says that's what she did. I made it a point to find social events that had other options so that, you know, we weren't going exclusively to, you know, places that were alcohol only. It would be a place that had food or kind of changing the setting a little bit so I didn't really feel like the odd man out if I wasn't, you know, taking shots with people. Feeling inspired? Life Kit's got 50 ways to improve your life in the show's resolution planner. Just visit npr.org slash lifekit. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. 
From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. You may also be hearing us on the WBUR app. Coming up in 20 minutes on All Things Considered, looking back on the life of a German girl who led a movement that defied a dictator, Adolf Hitler. Areas of fog tonight, otherwise it'll be cloudy with lows approaching 40. Tomorrow looks cloudy with temperatures in the upper 40s. Rain on Thursday will see highs around 50 degrees that day. It's 42 degrees in Boston. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. There's hope in Hong Kong's LGBTQ community that the government will legalize same-sex marriage following landmark rulings this year. The message is very clear. Same-sex couples should be able to live a dignified life and their relationships should be recognized and protected by law. It's Tuesday, December 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the children of Gaza. Palestinian health officials say many thousands of them have lost limbs or suffered other life-altering injuries in the Israel-Hamas war. I'm speechless when I try and think of the future of these children. It's generations of children who will be handicapped, who will be traumatized. The Biden administration hopes new approaches to farming can mitigate climate change and that they can improve conditions for black and other underserved farmers. Plus, we'll recap the year in space news. It's 501. News headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The U.S. carried out airstrikes on Iranian-backed militias in Iraq in response to an attack that wounded three U.S. service members. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has more. The Iraqi government has condemned the U.S. airstrikes against Iranian-backed groups in the country. It called the strikes a, quote, hostile act and said they could undermine relations between the U.S. and Iraq. Iraq is struggling to balance the ties it has to both the U.S. and Iran and says these two powers trading fire on its soil undermines the stability of the country. This is part of an increase in attacks across the region since the start of the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. The U.S. says Iran has launched dozens of attacks against its troops in Iraq and in Syria. And from Yemen, Houthi militias linked to Iran have fired on ships in the Red Sea they say have links with Israel. And Israel and the Lebanese militia, Hezbollah backed by Iran, have been trading fire almost daily. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. President Biden is seeking additional military aid for Israel and Ukraine, but Republicans want any legislation to include big changes in policy along the U.S. border with Mexico. But NPR's Franco Ordonez reports big changes could alienate Latino voters ahead of the 2024 election. When he was running for president in 2020, then-candidate Joe Biden said immigration was a top priority. But his plans for legislation quickly stalled. And three years later, there's still no path to citizenship. And instead, Biden is looking at more restrictions. 
Andrea Flores is a former Biden official at the National Security Council. She's disappointed at what she sees as a drastic shift in what Biden appears to be willing to accept. Well, he's not moving to the center. He's moving to a set of policies that once again are just they're so extreme. And then now they're being sold to the public as though they're not. The White House says they're in touch with Democratic leaders about their concerns. But they're also facing pressure from other Democrats to do something about the record number of migrants arriving at the border. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. A strong winter storm is slamming the plains and upper Midwest with heavy snow, freezing rain and gusty winds. The National Weather Service has issued blizzard warnings for parts of five states. In Colorado, meteorologist Kenley Bonner says driving will be difficult through tomorrow morning. I would advise that if they don't need to drive anywhere, to not drive, especially if they're heading to the plains, because it's going to be whiteout conditions and blowing snow that's dangerous and treacherous travel. Wind gusts of 50 to 60 miles an hour with isolated gusts up to 75 miles an hour are possible. Forecasters say a mix of sleet and freezing rain could also cause power outages. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 159 points. The Nasdaq up 81. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Police are investigating a swatting incident involving the address where Boston Mayor Michelle Wu lives. Swatting is when someone calls police to a property under the false pretense that a crime has been committed. According to Boston police, someone called police saying a man had shot his wife at the address. There had not been a shooting, and a detail officer outside the mayor's home said nothing unusual had taken place. Scientists are looking at a new way to detect an invasive beetle that's harming Massachusetts forests before it reaches healthy trees. The emerald ash borer has been spreading across the state for more than a decade. As WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, researchers' new approach to finding the bugs involves putting microphones in the dirt. The key to finding the harmful pest is to listen to the earthworms. Turns out, when the beetles are nearby, the worms often burrow deeper and you can hear it. That worm sound is from the lab. Researchers are now developing techniques for gathering similar sound in the field. But it's tricky. Jeremiah Audette is a student on the project at the University of New Hampshire. The soil is very quiet, and earthworms are also very quiet. So any noise you hear from above ground, be it an airplane or a car, they're going to make a big difference in what we're hearing. The approach could offer a more precise way to detect and kill invasive bugs rather than spraying pesticides more broadly. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden is warning people about scams this holiday season. He's launching a campaign called Fraud Fighters to educate people about the schemes. He says in recent months, several elderly residents have lost tens of thousands of dollars to fraud scams. During the holiday season, there's an increase in people using the guise of a charity in order to try to consummate a scam and that just with knowing that people are online shopping, fulfilling their holiday wishes, that they're out there on the prowl and people should be aware. Hayden advises people to only pick up the phone for callers they recognize and never give out personal information over the phone. We'll have lots of clouds tonight, fog in some areas. We'll see lows in the upper 30s. Tomorrow will be gray and cloudy in the upper 40s, about 50 degrees on Thursday with rain, then mostly cloudy Friday. We might see some more rain that day, and highs will be in the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. 2023 has been a bumpy year for humans on Earth. But off the planet, we've been doing a little better as a species. NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield has been tracking humanity's progress into the final frontier. And he joins me now to talk about it all. Hi there. Hi. So, Jeff, it has been a year here on our home planet. So I want to start this conversation about as far away (laughs) as we can go. I understand that there was some exciting asteroid news this year. Yeah, that's right. It's been a bumper year for asteroid research. Japanese researchers found a building block of life called uracil on an asteroid. Another group found dust from distant stars sprinkled all over it. Asteroids are thought to be these frozen chunks from the earliest days of our solar system. So each discovery tells us a little bit more about how we got here. All of this was made possible by samples that were returned three years ago by a Japanese mission, which is why it's so exciting even more samples came back to Earth this fall. NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission landed in the desert in Utah. It's carrying a chunk of an asteroid called Bennu. The mission scooped up about a cupful back in 2020. I have never heard anyone say anything about a cup full of asteroid before, to be clear. What did we learn from it? Well, so far, not much, because researchers are still very carefully unpacking all the grit and rocks from the sample container. But ultimately, Bennu is believed to be an ancient asteroid. So it may have more clues about the formation of the solar system, the Earth, and even us. Okay, so let's go now from distant asteroids to our closest neighbor, the moon. Whole lot of stuff going on up there. Jeff, what can you tell us about it? Yeah, the moon's been ignored for a long time, but there is a bit of a lunar renaissance underway. This year, Russia, India, and a private company based out of Japan all launched robotic missions to the moon. Now, the bad news is that Two out of three crashed. Both the Russian and Japanese private missions uh, ended up slamming into the lunar surface at high speed. But India, India nailed it. And this was huge for India's space agency. They operate on a very tight budget, but they are mighty. With this mission, they became the fourth country after the U.S., the Soviet Union, and China to land on the moon. Moreover, India landed farther south than any nation ever has. And that matters because the moon's south pole is believed to hold water ice. That ice is going to be critical for a future lunar colony, assuming humans can ever get there. Jeff, let's go to our final space story of the year. I think it is about a very big rocket. In fact, the launch of the biggest rocket ever built, right? Yep. This is Elon Musk's big rocket, which he showed off earlier this year. Uh, It's built by his company, SpaceX, and it's called Starship. It's this giant stainless steel beast of a machine. It's the tallest rocket ever built with the most engines ever, 33 in the first stage alone. This thing is supposed to one day carry humans to the moon and Mars, but first it has to get off the planet. And on that front, I have to say it did so-so. Its first flight ended with an explosion. Its second flight also ended with an explosion, but went better. The starship separated from that first stage and it flew off on its own for a bit before blowing up. But that's progress in the world of rockets. Jeff. 
what can we look forward to in 2024? Well, it's going to be an exciting year, both for big rockets and for going to the moon. NASA has several robotic lunar missions scheduled to fly. And then the space agency's Artemis II mission is supposed to go towards the end of the year. If that isn't delayed, it's going to carry three astronauts on a trip around the moon. That's the first time that's happened since the Apollo missions of the 1960s and 70s. And we should see a lot more of Starship. That rocket is critical not only to NASA's further plans for lunar exploration, but also for SpaceX. It needs it to launch its Starlink Internet satellite system. And if they can't get it working, that could spell trouble for both the space agency and the company. So stay tuned. I will. NPR's Jeff Brumfield, thank you. Thank you. Hong Kong civil liberties have been in decline since China's government imposed a national security law there. That law followed large-scale and sometimes violent anti-government protests in 2019. But the rights of LGBTQ people seem to have been left alone for the most part. And this year, Hong Kong's courts made several key rulings in favor of granting gay and lesbian couples more rights. This is sparking hopes that the city will join a growing number of places in Asia with legalized same-sex marriage. Cindy Xu sent us this report from Hong Kong. Across the border in mainland China, holding LGBT plus events like this one would be impossible. This is Pink Dot Hong Kong, an annual carnival celebrating gay pride. More than 13,000 people came out to this year's event, one of the biggest turnouts. Gay and lesbian couples are swaying to the music, and families with children are joining in on the fun, trying to keep a giant inflated pink ball in the air. One of the singers proudly declares that she switches sexual orientation from day to day, saying that's what makes life interesting. This kind of public speech would most likely be suppressed in mainland China, but not in Hong Kong, where people have become more accepting of homosexuality. Now, however, there are worries that Hong Kong's government may follow in the footsteps of mainland China where an LGBTQ center in Beijing and online platforms have been shut down. We are scared that if, if there are these large-scale shutdowns anymore that are more prolific, then it would send the wrong message to uh, government leaders in Hong Kong that they have to follow suit and do the same. That's Alan Howe, the deacon at the LGBTQ-inclusive Blessed Ministry Community Church. Fueling such fears is that in November, Hong Kong's annual gay pride parade was canceled. A low-key exhibition was held instead. And at the Pink Dot event, NGOs were not allowed to make speeches on stage like before. Allen and others think the government is worried that protesters would hijack the events, as has happened in the past. It is a significant victory which makes clear that Hong Kong law must afford due respect and protection to same-sex couples. But amid this the worries, there's cautious optimism. No That's because Hong Kong's courts handed down four key rulings this year in favor of the LGBTQ community. The most important ruling handed down in September by Hong Kong's highest court order the government to create a framework to recognize same-sex unions within two years. Now, of course, the court stopped short of mandating the government to uh, implement same-sex marriage, but at the same time, in the, the, the message is very clear. First of all, same-sex couples should be able to live a dignified life, and their relationships should be recognized and protected by law. And the government has two years 
to work on this framework. I think that's a very, very important development. That's Jerome Yao, co-founder of Hong Kong Marriage Equality, a nonprofit that advocates for the fair treatment of same-sex couples. He says he's not worried LGBTQ rights will be curtailed. Well, you know, I think, I think let's just look at the fact. You know, what I'm seeing is Hong Kong is Hong Kong, mainland is mainland, because obviously we have seen big LGBT events sort of happening in Hong Kong. You know, September we had a lesbian and gay film festival, gay games, you know, very big international sporting event promoting diversity inclusion happening in Hong Kong for the first time in Asia in the, in the game's history. The facts uh, speak for themselves as to the, situ- the situation here in Hong Kong. He's optimistic the government would take action to adhere to the highest court's ruling. Well, I'm cautiously optimistic. This is a legal obligation. The government is legally required to do something within two years. This is the final judgment of the court. I would be very surprised if the government did not do anything. Recent surveys have found that around 60% of Hong Kong people support same-sex marriage, much higher than in the past. Now people like Alan are waiting to see if the government will keep pace with changing attitudes in society and grant homosexual couples the same rights heterosexual couples have, including to inherit each other's assets, make medical decisions for each other, and get married right here in Hong Kong. A lot of couples here think this is very much needed for the community as a whole. Um, right now, for LGBTQ couples, they can get married, of course, if they, if they go abroad, but then- Or even do it by Zoom, right? Or do it by Zoom, yes. Me and my husband actually did it by Zoom. Like, why, why do LGBTQ couples have to go through this extra step when we're all paying the same taxes? Shouldn't we all enjoy the same civil rights? If the government legalizes same-sex marriage, members of the LGBTQ community say it will show that one country, two systems formula, under which Hong Kong returned to Chinese sovereignty in 1997, still works, at least in this respect. For NPR News, I'm Cindy Su in Hong Kong. The NBA's Detroit Pistons are on a record streak, but congratulations definitely are not in order. Losing is awful in this league, and we've had a lot of it. That was Pistons head coach Monty Williams after the team lost its record-tying 26th consecutive game. Detroit has the worst record in the NBA with just two wins. The last time they won a game was in late October. Meanwhile, other sad sack teams improve their own losing records when they play the Pistons. And for the Nets, they will end a five-game losing streak. Head into Christmas with an 11-point win over Detroit. And fans of the team, once known as the bad boys, are now just fans of a bad team. Folks in the stands and on social media are not happy about it. Imagine not winning a game in two months. That's what's about to happen. And that brings us to tonight. The Pistons are playing a rematch against the Nets at home in Detroit. If they lose, it will be their 27th straight loss, the longest single-season losing streak ever in the NBA. Bad news for the Pistons and their fans. There are still more than 50 games left in the season, so the streak could go on for a long, long time.
You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, the Biden administration says it wants new approaches to farming to help mitigate climate change and help black and other underserved farmers. WBUR supporters include Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. On Wall Street, it was an up day after the holiday. The Dow and the S&P went up 0.4 percent. NASDAQ picked up half a percent. In local business news, Massachusetts continues to add jobs. Of the 15 areas in the state for which employment estimates are published, nine gained jobs from October to November. Statewide, Massachusetts added 3,200 jobs in the past month and more than 61,000 jobs in the past year. The state's unemployment rate stands at 2.9 percent. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Burton's Grill and Bar with modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free and kids' menus available, too. And Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974. In Cambridge, Brighton, and at CambridgeNaturals.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Well, the weather is looking a bit gloomy for the next few days. It'll be cloudy tonight with some fog again in places. Lows nearing 40 degrees. It'll be cloudy tomorrow, temps in the upper 40s. Thursday will have rain and temperatures around 50. A chance of rain on Friday getting a little cooler in the mid-40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston with some fog and mist at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. 2023 has been a year of bitter divisions around the world, and some of our friends and family might be pressuring us to support their political viewpoints, even if they go against our own values. But how exactly do you stand up against your peers for what you think is right? Our colleagues at NPR's history podcast, Throughline, have been asking this question and looking to the past to find stories of people who dared to dissent no matter the cost. Today, reporter and producer Christina Kim from Throughline brings us the story of a young German girl and a movement that defied Hitler. Imagine you're a college student on your way to class at the University of Munich in Germany. It's Thursday, the 18th of February, 1943, and the sun is breaking out from behind the clouds. It's wartime, and you can't escape the reality of Hitler's regime. The minute class ends, you pour out of the building with your fellow students, eager to get some fresh air. But all of a sudden, you're hit with a waterfall of papers cascading from the sky. You timidly catch one in your hand. It says, 
Es gibt für uns nur eine Parole. Kampf gegen die Partei. For us, there is only one slogan. Fight against the party. You instinctively throw the paper down to the ground. It's calling for the end of Hitler. It's urging you to wake up. It's dangerous, even to look at. The Hitler Youth, the SA, and the SS have tried to homogenize, radicalize, and anesthetize us. Those words were part of a series of pamphlets written by the White Rose, a group of German students and one professor who opposed the Nazi regime. So the sixth pamphlet really is calling on students to rise up. This is Alexandra Lloyd, author of Defying Hitler, the White Rose pamphlets. To escape from the shackles of Nazism. On that day in Munich, if you dared look up, you would have seen a young woman, her hair cut short, throwing the papers off the highest balcony in the building. Her name was Sophie Scholl. Sophie Scholl was in many ways a typical girl of her generation. Sophie was a very enthusiastic member of the Hitler Youth Organization. Sophie did not begin her life as a radical, far from it. But when she was 16, the Gestapo, the Nazi secret police, arrested her brother Hans for his alleged homosexuality and for participating in youth groups that were not Nazi sanctioned. They also arrested Sophie and two other siblings. And I think this is a really important moment because it brings home how dangerous the regime is. And it brings home the idea that, that really no one is safe. And the Scholl children are, and this is what's so remarkable in some ways about this story, the Scholl children are really ideal Germans for the Nazi regime. They're strong, healthy, they like all the right things. They're Aryan. They tick all of these kind of Nazi boxes. But at this point, there's a shift. It's a shift that's evident in Sophie's letters and diary entries. To be honest, I rather hanker to be on my own because I have an urge to act on what so far has existed within me merely as an idea, as what I perceive to be right. And what she perceived to be right was that people needed to stop being cogs in the Nazi machine. So on the eve of her 21st birthday, she moved to Munich to be with her brother Hans and study at the University of Munich. Once there, everything changed as Sophie's role in The White Rose began. The White Rose Resistance Circle was a group who took action against the Nazi regime by producing anti-fascist, anti-war pamphlets. Sophie was tasked with the dangerous job of making sure the resistance pamphlets were reproduced and reached as many people as possible, which at the time was no small feat. You are always at risk of being stopped and searched. So transporting copies of illegal pamphlets is in no way a safe nor sensible thing to do. But for Sophie, the message she was spreading was worth it. We are attempting to reawaken the gravely wounded German spirit from within. Since the conquest of Poland, 300,000 Jews have been murdered in that country. We will not be silent. We are your bad conscience. The White Rose will never leave you in peace. 
And that's what brings us back to that sunny Thursday in Munich in 1943. The White Rose had just finished making their sixth pamphlet, but they'd run out of stamps and envelopes. So they decided that Hans and Sophie would distribute them at the University of Munich. And on February 18th, at about half past 10, Hans and Sophie left their flat. They walked to the university. They had with them a suitcase and a briefcase that were full of copies of the pamphlet. Their plan was to discreetly deposit the pamphlets all over campus and get away undetected. So they work really quickly. They follow the plan. They leave copies of the pamphlets. But just before they leave, Sophie, for whatever reason, decides to push one of these piles of pamphlets over the balcony and they cascade down. A janitor sees Sophie do this and accosts her and her brother Hans. They call the Gestapo, who turn up, arrest Hans and Sophie, and take them into Gestapo custody. By the following Monday at 5 p.m. on February 22, 1943, Sophie Scholl, Hans Scholl are executed by guillotine for their involvement in the White Rose. The White Rose wanted the war to end, and it didn't. They wanted Hitler and his regime to fall, and it didn't. I mean, it would take another two years after they were executed. But it matters that they tried. It matters that they made the attempt. And I think that today is inspiring. Today, the story of the White Rose is well known in Germany. And the courtyard outside the main building at the University of Munich bears the name Scholl. And bronze versions of the flyers are embedded in the cobblestones. That was Christina Kim from NPR's history podcast, Throughline. For more stories of courage and dissent, listen to Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This story from Throughline comes from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for starting your evening with WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, aid workers worry about the future of thousands of children in Gaza who've lost limbs and suffered other life-altering injuries in the war between Hamas and Israel. Clouds and some fog tonight with lows approaching 40. Tomorrow looks cloudy with temperatures in the upper 40s. Then rain on Thursday with highs getting up to about 50 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. President Biden loves to talk about his economy. Guess what? Bidenomics is working. He has reason to grow. Unemployment is down, job growth is up, 
So why doesn't Biden benefit in the polls? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm John Stempen. A top Israeli official is in Washington meeting face-to-face with Secretary of State Tony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. NPR's Deepa Shivron reports the talks come as Israel says it expects the war in Gaza to continue for months. A spokesperson for the National Security Council says Israel's Minister for Strategic Affairs, Ron Dermer, is attending meetings at the White House. The NSC says the Israeli minister, the U.S. Secretary of State, and the U.S. National Security Advisor will discuss the conflict in Gaza and the return of hostages held by Hamas. There are approximately 110 hostages still being held. In recent days, Israel has intensified its bombardment of Gaza, where health officials say more than 20,000 Palestinians have been killed, two-thirds of them women and children. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. The Pentagon says the U.S. military struck three targets in Iraq today after a small number of U.S. military personnel were injured in a drone attack. Hospitals owned by private equity firms have worse patient outcomes on some important measures. NPR's Ping Wang reports it raises questions about patient care. Patients at hospitals taken over by private equity had a 25% increase in hospital-related complications compared with those treated at other similar hospitals. The patients were significantly more likely to fall during their hospital stay or get bloodstream infections. That's the finding from a new study led by researchers at Harvard Medical School published in the journal JAMA. It's based on outcomes in Medicare patients over the past decade. In that time, private equity firms have invested a trillion dollars in the healthcare industry. The study authors say that the for-profit firm's expansion has led to higher prices and concerns about the quality of care. Ping Huang, NPR News. This is NPR News from Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The Boston Police Department confirms the Roslindale home of Mayor Michelle Wu was the target of a swatting incident. That's when someone calls in a false report of a crime. WBUR's Carrie Young has more. The fake emergency call came in yesterday around 5.30 p.m. A man called a non-emergency number to say he had shot his wife. When police and paramedics got there, they quickly realized it was the mayor's house. Wu says it was a shock to open the door to see so many flashing lights, but overall, the incident wasn't very disruptive to her family. This is a criminal act that is a misuse of very valuable public safety resources, but for better or worse, my family are a bit used to it by now. It's not the first time this has happened. The Boston Police Department is working to determine who was behind the call. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. About 25 families are now staying at a former courthouse in Cambridge. The building, home to the Middlesex South Registry of Deeds, is being used as an overflow shelter site. It can accommodate about 70 families and is expected to stay open through the winter. Cambridge city officials plan to hold a community meeting Thursday to talk about how residents can help the families who are staying there. Today is the first day of Kwanzaa, the celebration of African-American culture and heritage. Lovely Hoffman is the co-chair of the Boston Kwanzaa Community Association. She tells WBUR's Radio Boston the holiday celebrates seven values, unity, self-determination, collective work, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and faith. The seven principles are based on universal African principles that are practiced throughout various African cultures. 
And the purpose of these principles is to just allow us to reflect upon who we are and what we need to do as a community to, to stay strong. Kwanzaa runs through January 1st. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is extending a right whale slow zone near Nantucket. An aerial survey team detected the presence of right whales southeast of the island on Saturday. Mariners should avoid the waters in that area or travel at 10 knots or less through January 7th. There are only about 360 right whales left in the world. It's 534. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. Looks like the sunny weather is going away for most of this holiday week. Tonight will be cloudy with areas of fog. Temperatures will only go down to about 40 degrees. Upper 40s tomorrow with cloudy skies. Then rain moves in tomorrow night into Thursday. Thursday will stay rainy and around 50 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. More than 5 million people in this country suffer from amblyopia, which is sometimes called lazy eye. People with the condition don't see in 3D. But as Joe Palka reports, some researchers think it may be possible to fix the problem. It's quite reasonable to think that if there's something wrong with your vision, there must be something wrong with your eyes, but no. Amblyopia is considered cortical blindness. It happens in your brain. That's Elizabeth Quinlan. She's a neuroscientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Both eyes can see, but... In all cases of amblyopia, there's a stronger eye and a weaker eye, and it's winner-take-all in the cortex, and the cortex learns to ignore the signals from the weak eye. What that means is the brain doesn't fuse the images from the two eyes. Fusing the images is necessary to see the world in 3D. But it may not have to be winner-take-all. Dennis Levi is a vision researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. He says you have to remember the weaker eye is sending signals to the brain. And they've been suppressed by the brain because of the strong eye, the strong signals that are reliable. Traditionally, doctors treated people with amblyopia by putting an eye patch over their good eye, forcing the weaker eye to do all the seeing. But Levi is one of a group of researchers who thinks patching might not be the right way to go. Several research teams are developing methods of encouraging the eyes to work together. Several companies are involved as well. Luminopia is one of those companies. Scott Shaw is CEO. We were just very surprised to see eye patches were the standard of care for such a prevalent condition. It felt like a very archaic method. So Luminopia developed a new method. It uses a virtual reality headset. Patients watch a video, but the headset blocks out certain parts of the display for each eye. So the patients actually have to combine input from the two images to get the full video. Luminopia's system does seem to improve vision in the weaker eye, but the evidence that it can allow a person with amblyopia to see in 3D isn't in yet. 
Luminopia's treatment is aimed at children because scientific dogma says if you don't learn to fuse the signals from both eyes at an early age, you never will. That's what I and a lot of other people are trying to challenge. Eric Geyer is a researcher and physician at Boston Children's Hospital. He says, yes, the brains of children tend to be more adaptable than those of older patients. What's more, adults with amblyopia have spent decades suppressing the image from the weaker eye, and some scientists think that may be a habit that's too hard to break. There are a lot of people, myself included, who fundamentally believe that this is something that we may be able to change. Geyer owns a stake in Luminopia and has worked with the company to test its new system. He says Luminopia's is just one new approach to treating people with amblyopia. There are a variety of others being studied. These include taking a pill that may rejuvenate the visual system to allow for recovery. So who knows? It may be possible to teach an old brain new tricks. For NPR News, I'm Joe Palka. The Biden administration wants farmers and ranchers to reduce planet warming pollution. So last year, as an incentive, the administration launched a more than $3 billion grant program. Now, some of that money is meant to go to minority farmers and others who have historically been underserved. But is that happening? Well, Amy Mayer is an independent journalist who's been looking into where this money is going and joins us now to talk about it. Hey, Amy. Hey, Elsa. So let's start with where the money's going. I mean, why is the administration focused now in particular on farmers of color and other underserved communities? Well, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is who's going to administer these grants, has a known history of discriminating, especially against black farmers. I mean, there were lawsuits back in the 90s. And more recently, there was this failed effort within a COVID package to try to relieve debt for some of the struggling farmers. But that got challenged in court. Here's USDA Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, Robert Bonney. This is an area that's clearly been a challenge for USDA for a long time. And as we think about everything we do, including climate stuff, we want to make sure we we build in equity. Okay, so how is the USDA doing that, like bringing equity into climate programs? Well, each of these, what are called climate smart projects, has an equity goal. That's a plan to reach women, military veterans, farmers who are just starting out, and ethnic or racial minorities. And a year ago, USDA awarded half of the 141 grants specifically to minority-serving groups or projects focused on underserved farmers. And so I met a chicken farmer in Ohio where I went to learn more about how this is all going to work. Okay, let's take a listen. Sharifa Tomlinson's 12-acre urban farm in Riverside, Ohio, produces eggs, meat, and vegetables. As a kid, she loved being outside and growing plants. But agriculture never seemed like a career option. No one said, oh, Sharifa, when you grow up, you could be a farmer. The U.S. Department of Agriculture helped discourage generations of African Americans like Tomlinson and other racial minorities from farming. USDA did do some, like, junky stuff back in the day. The USDA has denied loans and other farm supports to black farmers, all the way back to reneging on promised land after the Civil War. It's trying to right its wrongs now, and so um, let's right these wrongs. Tomlinson's chickens are processed and sold to food banks through a USDA-funded program called Ohio Can. She sees opportunity with USDA, including with the new climate projects. But many black farmers remain skeptical. USDA officials are hoping the historically black land-grant colleges and universities will be a catalyst to win some over because they've had close relationships with farmers of color. 
at Central State University in Wilberforce, Ohio, Professor Ibrahim Katampe has a $5 million grant to support underserved farmers through the USDA's Climate Smart Program, including minority-owned farm businesses in urban and high-poverty areas. These demographics seem to be mostly where small minority farmers seem to operate from. The plan is to convert waste from a woman-owned cattle feedlot into a nutrient-rich fertilizer. So this is the A&B Porteous facility. I'm Brent. Uh, A&B is for my two daughters, Amy and Beth. At the feedlot, Brent Porteous explains the grant money will pay for a high-tech European tubing system that helps convert waste to fertilizer. The goal is to reduce methane emissions from the manure and give the fertilizer to Katampe's small farmers. And if we do that, then we have increased their profitability. Because their fertilizer costs drop to zero. If everything works as expected, Katampe hopes more manure will be made into fertilizer instead of producing greenhouse gas emissions. USDA gave the project its final approval in November, and now Katampe can start recruiting participants. Okay, we're back with Amy Mayer. And and let me just ask you, Amy, because you mentioned in this story that this HBCU, Central State University, it got a small grant, something like just $5 million, right? Like, How big are the other climate smart grants that the USDA is giving out? So these grants are specifically for commodity projects like corn, beef, soybeans, and so forth. The biggest awards are up to $100 million, and they went to large multinational companies like Tyson and Pepsi and some of the biggest land-grant universities like Ohio State and Virginia Tech. But will those other grantees serve minority farmers as well? It's hard to say. Um, These projects are going to run for five years, and they have to have an equity goal alongside their climate goals. Um, But there's robust monitoring on the climate side, and for equity, there's not really any official evaluation. Huh. Well, thank you very much, Amy. Thank you. That is reporter Amy Mayer. This story was produced in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network, a nonprofit news organization. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Palestinian health officials say in addition to the more than 20,000 people killed in Gaza, more than 54,000 have been wounded since the war began. The vast majority are women and children. NPR's Aya Batrawi spoke to someone who spent weeks in overwhelmed hospitals in Gaza trying to care for kids. And a warning, this story mentions suicide. Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, has physicians at some of the few hospitals still functioning in Gaza. Emergency coordinator Marie-Aure Perreault-Rivial describes what she saw there. So our surgeons had to operate on on one-year-old, two-year-olds who had to be amputated from one leg or two, one arm or two, but they they lost. It's it's very, very common. Perreault-Rivial spent five weeks in Gaza at different hospitals and clinics and left only a few days ago. Reached in France, she says she saw kids severely wounded, crippled for life, but also orphaned and with nowhere to go. And the only thing I can say is that it's even worse in reality than it looks. It's the amount of suffering is just something, yeah, incomparable. It's really unbearable. MSF was offering mental health support to children in Khan Yunis, an area of intense fighting now between Israel's military and Hamas. She says children there were drawing pictures of their house being bombed and family members killed. She says kids as young as five were having suicidal thoughts. I'm... Speechless when I try and think of the future of these children. Um, it's generations of, of children who will be handicapped, who will be traumatized. The very, very children in our mental health um, program 
are telling us that they would rather die than continue living in Gaza now. MSF had also been treating kids in that clinic for skin disease, diarrhea, and chest infections. But they had to stop their operations because of Israeli evacuation orders. Around 2 million Palestinians have been displaced by this war. Many don't have access to clean water and are living on the street. Perrault Rivial says some of the amputations she saw there were the result of wounds that had become severely infected. She says doctors are struggling to offer post-operative care to babies in Gaza who've lost their limbs before they could ever learn to walk. And we're also doing physiotherapy, but again, how do you do physiotherapy on a, on a baby of one year old who cannot walk but has already, who's already lost her, his legs? She was at Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunis recently. That's where Dunya Abu Mohsen, a 12-year-old girl who'd lost her right leg, both parents, and two siblings, was being treated. She says in a video she wants a prosthetic leg and to become a doctor to treat other kids. It was recorded by Defense for Children International Palestine, a Palestinian human rights organization focused on kids. But on Sunday, she was killed inside the hospital by an Israeli tank shell, according to Gaza's health ministry. Israel's military did not respond to NPR's request for comment on this incident. Israel blames casualties on Hamas for operating in civilian areas and says its war in Gaza is to destroy Hamas after the October 7th attacks. Perrault Rivial says there's very little that aid groups can do for survivors while bombs are still being dropped. It's a life of incredible suffering that is just ahead of them now. What the future there? And she says no amount of aid can make up for what Gaza's children have lost. Aya Batrawi, NPR News. If you or someone you know is in crisis, you can call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up just after the top of the hour, tensions rise in the Middle East as Iran-backed militias attack U.S. forces and President Biden orders retaliatory strikes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. You can shop their organic, sustainable, curated furniture collections during their end-of-year event, happening now. More at circlefurniture.com. Coming to City Space Thursday, January 4th, Dr. Pooja Lakshman will discuss her new book that challenges the industrial wellness complex, and she'll offer tips for genuine self-care. Tickets at wbur.org slash events. We'll have lots of clouds tonight, fog in some areas, and we'll see lows in the upper 30s. Tomorrow will be gray and cloudy in the upper 40s, about 50 degrees on Thursday with rain, mostly cloudy Friday. We might see some more rain that day, and highs Friday will be in the mid-40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, the senior editor of Cognoscenti, WBUR's ideas and opinion page. We asked our readers to tell us about the most memorable gifts they'd ever received. People told us all sorts of things. A positive pregnancy test, barbecue potato chips, an inflatable boat. I wrote about the bamboo fruit bowl my husband bought me about 20 years ago. We still have it. Gifts can be expensive or dirt cheap. They can be objects or experiences. The best gifts are totally subjective but often they delight or startle or make you feel truly known. During this holiday season, I hope you'll consider a gift to WBUR. 
Help us go beyond the news of the day to bring you stories that illuminate ideas and foster understanding. Give now at WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The new movie, All of Us Strangers, is a love story where something feels slightly unreal. Hello. Hi. Saw you looking at me from the street. I'm assuming you're not with anyone. Never see you with anyone. Adam and Harry, played by Andrew Scott and Paul Meskel, appear to be the only two people living in a high-rise building in London. And what are the chances? Both of them are gay, single, attractive, kind, and wounded. You can't help but wonder, is this a metaphor or some kind of fairy tale? I always saw it as allegory, as fable, as a trip through his subconscious, whatever it might be. But at the same time, I still wanted it to feel grounded in some reality. Andrew Haig is the film's writer and director. He has told stories about queer joy before, the movie Weekend, the TV show Looking, but All of Us Strangers is a different kind of story. I think it was always a film about someone trying to escape loneliness rather than be uh, wanting to stay within it. Um, And I think all of our decisions sort of came around like, what does it feel like to be alone? And then what does it feel like to be intimate again with someone? What does it feel like to connect? It's also a very personal story. Andrew Haig told me he filmed the scenes where Adam reconnects with his parents in the house where the director spent his own childhood. It was just another example of wanting to somehow just feel really deeply connected to the material. And if this was a story about someone going back into his past, it felt like I had to go back into mine at the same time. So it was, it was a strange environment to be shooting in, you know, scenes in my old parents' bedroom or scenes in my bedroom, you know, kind of recreating how that used to feel. Did anyone on set ever say, why are we doing this in the home that your parents <laughs> used to live in? They would basically be like, are you insane? Like, why would you do this? Why would you put this, put yourself through this? And occasionally people would come up to me and be like, are you okay? This must be very strange for you. You know, like the scene between him and his dad when they sort of come to terms with some things, that's, you know, in my old front room. But it was, you know, it was cathartic, if I'm honest. Like, it was cathartic. I think as you get older, I'm 50 now, so the idea of going backwards to see where the rest of your life should be is quite interesting. I mean, if you don't mind my asking... Were you okay? What was it like for you? Um, I didn't have a particularly happy childhood, no. I mean, my, I, I, I certainly wasn't a, a happy kid. Uh, my parents uh, split up when I was young and I was coming to terms with my sexuality. And look, this is the 80s. It's not, not the best time to come to terms with your sexuality back then. Uh, so, yeah, I was, I, was, I was a troubled kid, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so the experience of revisiting these incredibly intimate scenes in the room that you as a child were in. I mean, what what did that feel like? Yeah, it was just, it was, it was powerful, I guess. And, and I think, you know, the film is so much about like the, the pain that we keep buried, like, and that can be from big or small trauma. That can be from loss and from grief, but it can be from something a father might have said to a son when he was young or something a mother might have said or something that they heard on the television, whatever it might be. There's so many things that can cause trauma in us as we go through our lives. And I think it is about like staring them in the face sometimes and, and like trying to excavate that pain in order to sort of find some liberation. And so being back in my house was sort of helped that. It really did. It kind of, it's like I couldn't escape it. One theme that comes up in the film is something that I think 
all gay men of a certain age have in common. You, Andrew Scott, the actor, and I are all within five years of each other in age. And growing up gay in the 80s and 90s, for the most part, meant being told that you would likely be lonely, bullied, ostracized, and probably die of AIDS before your parents were old enough to retire. Um, this is something that Andrew Scott's character tells his younger boyfriend, where Adam says for a long time he wasn't into sex. For obvious reasons. Obvious reasons. I thought that if I anyway, I'd die. It's probably pretty difficult for you to imagine. Andrew Haig, what kind of legacy did it leave for you to survive to see the other side of that? Mm. Like, I think it's so... Because um, the world has moved on so much, let's say, and things are very, very different. It's easy to forget how we actually used to feel in that time. I mean, I was terrified for 15, 20 years, you know what I mean? And growing into my sexuality in the shadow of AIDS and in the shadow of really intense homophobia, I genuinely thought that my life would not be possible, that I would never find love. And if I did find love or I found anybody, I would probably die. And I think that's a, that's a horrendous thing for a generation of people to carry around with them. And I think it's important to remember that that is how we felt because it doesn't go away. It's still there embedded uh, within us. And I think for a younger generation, they may think on that with a, with a slight surprise <laughs> that that's, that's what we had to kind of uh, go through and, and feel. But I think it had a huge legacy on a whole generation of gay men especially, and they're still dealing with it every day. They're still trying to kind of get rid of the shame that they felt and the terror that they felt growing up in that time. Did you and Andrew Scott talk about how growing up in that stew affected each of you differently and, and how it affected his character, Adam? We definitely talked about it. I think the great thing about when you sit down with someone that's also gay and of a certain generation, you barely need to say anything because you understand that you have a very shared experience. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter if you're in America or if you're in the UK. You have that shared experience of growing up at that time. So, of course, we talked about it. And we did talk about how it still affects us now in small ways that you don't quite realise, how that kind of shame can suddenly bubble up again or that fear can suddenly bubble up again, even though you think you've got past it and moved on. And so for Adam, it was such a fascinating thing because he's going back to meet his parents but he's also going back to meet himself in a certain time so he's been reminded of so many things that have been buried within him so you describe the process of making this film as cathartic and i'm curious if you can tell us more about what was the before and what was the after like what have you left behind and where are you now if that's the right way to characterize it yeah i think what i wanted the film to be was compassionate to everybody so I wanted it to be compassionate to people who've gone through an experience of, say, growing up gay and saying, listen, I understand what that feels like. This is, this is my version of that, of, of that story. But I also wanted it to be compassionate towards parenting and how difficult that can be and how you are a product of your time and you learn and you change and you grow. And I think in a strange sense, I've managed to sort of forgive a little bit, forgive myself for being angry and unhappy at times, forgive my parents for not saying the right things always. And so I feel like that's been quite cathartic to me. And also, I suppose, understanding on a deeper level, kind of even what I think about love and what I think love is about and how I think it's about being there for someone else almost more than it is them being there for you. And I think the film has really helped me understand the connection between parental love and romantic love and how so closely entwined they are. Andrew Haig directed the new movie, All of Us Strangers. Thank you so much for talking with us about it. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. From the estate of Joan B. Croc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up just after 6, artificial intelligence and your work. While AI might not take your job, it'll likely change it in some way. That story ahead. Cloudy tonight with lows around 40 degrees. Clouds will stick around tomorrow. We'll have temps in the upper 40s. And then Thursday, we'll have rain and temperatures around 50. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 6 o'clock. I'm executive editor for news, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden orders retaliatory strikes after the latest attack on U.S. troops by Iran-backed militias. There have been dozens of attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria since the start of the war between Hamas and Israel. It's Tuesday, December 26. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. There's concern about infectious diseases spreading in Gaza as the war has devastated the health infrastructure and overwhelmed remaining hospitals. Also coming up, cooking with ingredients that are original to this country. We'll head into the kitchen with an indigenous chef. And ahead on Marketplace, while Christmas has come and gone, many families are now left with houses full of toys. Oh, gosh, yes. There's Legos everywhere. There's stuffed animals everywhere. There's everything everywhere. Why do kids have so much stuff? That's ahead at 6.30. It's 6.01. Top news stories are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is getting worse. Potable water is scarce. Aid groups warn of coming famine and disease is spreading. NPR's Nina Kravinsky has more from Tel Aviv. Much of the population of the Palestinian enclave is crammed into Rafah, a southern city on the border with Egypt. NPR producer Anas Baba spoke to a man there who fled his farm in the northern city of Beit Lahia with his family. Nidal al-Barawi says they don't have enough food or water, and his family doesn't have access to a toilet. He says, I only wish that if I am to die, I die with all my family. I don't want to die and leave them, and I don't want them to die, and I survive. He says the humanitarian situation in Rafa is so bad, he's considered bringing his family back home to the north, even though that area has been under a weeks-long evacuation order from Israel. 
Nina Kravinsky, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Analysis of wastewater across the U.S. suggests that COVID infections have been rising in recent weeks, reaching the highest level since a spike last winter. NPR's Nareet Eisenman has more. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, this surge in COVID cases appears to be largely driven by the emergence of the JN.1 variant, which it estimates now accounts for as many as half of all new cases. Officials say this suggests JN.1 is more transmissible and or better at evading our immune systems. But this current surge is nothing like the massive increase in infections caused by the Omicron variant two years ago. And so far, while hospitalizations are up, they're about 50% lower than this time last year. Officials also stress that existing vaccines, tests, and treatments still work well against this variant. Nareet Eisenman, NPR News. Those who want to buy a house but have been priced out of the market are hoping the new year will bring lower mortgage rates. NPR's Chris Arnold reports rates have already started falling. The latest numbers from Freddie Mac show that the rate for a 30-year fixed-rate loan has fallen to 6.7 percent. That's down from nearly 8 percent in October, and rates could fall more. Lawrence Yoon is chief economist of the National Association of Realtors. He says mortgage rates have been unusually high compared to rates for Treasury bonds. If that spread were to return to normal, mortgage rates would be about a percentage point lower than they are. That would be a huge major factor for consumers, home buyers. Uh, but the reality is that we are not in a normal situation. We don't have the normal spread. So we'll see in the new year if the mortgage market settles back to something more normal. Chris Arnold, NPR News. Wall Street higher by the closing bell, the Dow up 159, NASDAQ up 81. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts cities and towns have received more than $50 million from opioid-related settlements since July 2022. But as WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports, only a small fraction of that funding has been spent to address the drug overdose crisis. The first annual reports from municipalities show most are still deciding what to do with payments that will continue for nearly two decades. Boston received $4.7 million and expects to announce its plan next month. Cambridge, Springfield, and New Bedford all got more than a million dollars and haven't spent anything yet. Worcester is the only major city that used the money right away for street-based mental health and recovery programs. Some municipal leaders say they are reviewing data and community input to make sure their money is invested wisely. But some families and community advocates want faster action because the number of people dying after an overdose is higher than ever. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. A New York City man is facing motor vehicle homicide and other charges for a crash in southeastern Massachusetts that left a 15-year-old boy and his 73-year-old grandfather dead. Police say 41-year-old Adam Gothier was drunk and driving the wrong way on Route 6 in Somerset last night when he crashed head-on into a car on Veterans Memorial Bridge. A third passenger in that car is in critical condition. Two people in a third car suffered minor injuries. Gothier, who was originally from Somerset, was held on $100,000 bail after being arraigned today from a New Bedford hospital. A pro-Israel billboard over I-290 in Worcester has been vandalized with anti-Israel graffiti. The original billboard from nonprofit Jew Belong said, Let's be clear, Hamas is your problem too. It was vandalized with a pro Hamas message. Anyone who might know who vandalized the sign is asked to call Worcester Police.
Leaders in the Boston food scene are joining forces for a new initiative meant to highlight the diversity in the city's food scene. The effort, led by Meet Boston, will spotlight chefs, neighborhoods, and culinary events throughout the city. Its goal is to attract new visitors who place an emphasis on local cuisine while traveling. David O'Donnell is among those leading the effort for Meet Boston. He says more than two dozen Boston-area chefs are taking part. We want it to be their story representing Boston's story, whether it be their background, the cuisine that they're most interested in serving, how their craft has evolved, what role Boston has played in that evolution and in the development of them as culinary personalities. Chefs and restaurateurs behind establishments including Mita, Sarma, and Alcove are among those taking part in the endeavor. The state firefighters union and nine firefighter locals are calling on Boston City Council to accept a federal counterterrorism security grant. The union sent a letter to the council today requesting approval of more than $13 million from the Department of Homeland Security. They say the money is needed to prevent and respond to terrorism threats, including chemical, biological, and nuclear attacks. The city council failed to accept the funding earlier this year over concern the funds could be used for surveillance. A city spokesperson says the mayor plans to refile the grant in the new year. Well, temperatures will dip to about 40 degrees tonight. It will be cloudy and foggy in some areas. The clouds will stick around tomorrow. Highs will be in the upper 40s. Rain will move in tomorrow night. Then it will stay rainy for Thursday. A bit warmer that day, around 50 degrees. Friday should be mostly cloudy with a chance of rain and in the mid-40s. Then Saturday will start with a chance of rain. Then it should become partly sunny, finally, once again. Highs around 40 on Saturday. It's 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. 2023 may go down as the year AI hit the mainstream. It's only been a little over a year since ChatGPT made its public debut, and a lot of people are wondering and worrying about how ChatGPT and other AI could change the way we work. Recently, NPR's labor and workplace correspondent Andrea Shu spoke with one illustrator about his fears and hopes for AI and the dilemmas raised by incorporating it into his work. Baltimore illustrator John DeCampos has strong feelings about AI, dating back to when he discovered that some of his original work had been used to train AI to be smarter. And I'm not famous at all. I'm like a very not well-known dude outside of the world of just Baltimore. He joined the ranks of artists denouncing programs that use AI to create images, pointing out that they were built using work like his scraped from the internet without permission. It's so gross. Practically overnight, programs like Midjourney and DALI have made it possible for anyone to create highly sophisticated images for fun, but also to make money, or if you're a business, to save money. For DeCampos, that's an outrage and a concern. The fact that human expression and art is now at risk and on the chopping block is just like super duper scary to me. Now DeCampos is hoping to make a living as a board game designer. So yeah, here's some of my stuff here. In his home studio, he shows me his newest release, Black Mold, which he describes as a survival horror escape. It's played with dice and decks of cards, adorned with drawings sprung from his own mind and hand. This game is uh, massive. There's 
easily 50 or 60 hours worth of illustration work in this box. It's work that Decompass knows can be done and is being done elsewhere by AI. As disgusted as he is by that, even he has found a use for AI. Nowadays, he uses ChatGPT to write updates for his Kickstarter followers and social media posts to market his games. He starts by dictating instructions into his phone. I'll say like, these are the qualities of the game that we're selling take all of this information, melt it down into 15 words or less. Give me five different versions written to sell this product on Instagram. He'll take what he likes, make a few edits, and mission accomplished in a fraction of the time. DeCampo says he doesn't have the same ethical issues using AI to generate text as he does with images. And I think that that's probably a lot of implicit bias. And I'm trying to grapple with being maybe a little hypocritical for using generative text, but I'm kind of figuring it out. All right, Andrea Shu is here to talk with us about how workers are grappling with the role of AI in their jobs as they integrate that technology and how we can gain perspective instead of panic around the impact of AI on our work. Hey, Andrea. Hey. Fascinating to hear the ambivalence of John DeCampos there as he resents AI and also uses it in his daily life. Yeah, and Ari, to take you a little bit behind the scenes for a minute, probably the first half hour or even 45 minutes of our conversation was all about the ways that he sees AI ruining art. And then he suddenly took that turn and started talking about how, as a small business owner, he was finding ChatGPT to be a real time saver. Of course, as you heard, he's now struggling with how he feels about that because he knows there's also artistry in writing and writers out there who are concerned about their future. So I really appreciated his honesty and realized that this is what all of us are going to be grappling with. It's less if we are going to have to incorporate AI into our work and more how we do it and how we can be thoughtful about it. And we're talking about jobs in the creative space, which are not the kinds of occupations that have historically faced existential threats from new technologies. That's right. You know, over history, we've seen how advancements in computers and robotics have replaced a lot of manual jobs. Factories used to have many times more workers than they do now. I've been in factories where all you see are people pushing buttons. So one big change is that the AI innovations we're seeing, these tools like ChatGPT, they are more likely to impact knowledge workers than manual workers. Yeah, the economic researchers at the job site Indeed.com put out this fascinating report recently that examined which jobs are the most and least likely to be impacted by AI. They looked at how good AI tools are at doing different tasks involved in all these different jobs. So at one end, you have driving jobs. Right now, they face the lowest risk of being replaced because while AI might be okay or pretty good at some of the skills required for those jobs like communication, it's rated poor at actually operating a vehicle. Huh. So even though there's lots of talk about autonomous vehicles, at this point, AI is not up to the task of driving a car. Yeah, exactly. Now, some of the other jobs that AI wouldn't be good at right now are things like caregiving. You can't have an AI watching a room full of toddlers. Also, food preparation and nursing. Hmm. Well, what are the jobs on the other end that are most likely to be impacted by AI? Well, software developers top the list. The Indeed researchers found that generative AI is good or excellent at 95% of the skills in software development job postings. And I've talked to workers in this field who say it is saving them a ton of time already because the AI is better and faster at writing code than they are. And another occupation that appears at risk, um, legal assistance. 
we had several people from law firms respond to a call out that we did about how AI was changing their work. And they told us about how AI can help with document review. You can ask ChatGPT to summarize mountains of documents that would take days to go through. AI can also comb through case law and build an argument. But, Ori, of course, there are hazards to outsourcing this kind of work to AI. And you might recall there was a New York lawyer who was sanctioned earlier this year after he was caught citing bogus cases in a lawsuit against an airline. You know, in, in court, he told the judge he had used ChatGPT for legal research and hadn't bothered to double check the bot's work. Yeah, I remember that case. Okay, so for those of us who fear that AI might come for our jobs in the future, what can we do? to protect ourselves, to remain needed. Yeah, well, I took some advice from someone else who responded to our call out, Ethan Kissel in Michigan. He produces television commercials for local businesses. He's involved in everything from going to meet with the clients to discuss what they want, to writing the scripts, to shooting the video, bringing in voice actors, and then editing it all together. So I was basically from the moment the project started to the end of creating the commercial. And he pointed out to me that, you know, any one of those jobs could be at risk if that one job was all you did. But he's not so afraid for his own job because, you know, he says, I'm a jack of all trades. And I also got another tidbit from Jeffrey Garcia. He works at a tech company in a project management role. He told me his bosses have not told him that he needs to be using AI yet, but he's just taken it upon himself to experiment with various tools, to do things like start project plans, to do some of the data analytics that he does as part of his job. And he's finding, well, this is really helping me be more efficient. And he's concluded that it's prudent for him to stay on top of where this technology is and you know, understand how it's changing his profession so that he can make sure his skills remain relevant. I think it's a matter of finding ways to kind of evolve and adapt with the technology. When you put it that way, it sounds not all that different from previous technological innovations from computers to the internet, where it's just a matter of figuring out how to make it make your work better rather than replace you. Exactly. NPR's Andrea Shu, thanks for your reporting. Thank you, Ari. Last night, the U.S. carried out airstrikes on militias in Iraq in response to an attack that wounded three U.S. service members hours before. This comes as there's been an uptick in fighting between Iran proxies and the U.S. and Israel since the start of the Gaza war. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has been covering these developments from her base in Rome. Hey, Ruth. Hey. So what can you tell us about these latest attacks in Iraq? Well, President Biden ordered these airstrikes against three locations the U.S. says are used by Iranian-backed groups in the country. And like you said, you know, these U.S. airstrikes are intended as a response for a drone attack yesterday on an airbase in northern Iraq. That critically wounded one U.S. service member and, and injured two others. And the U.S. has about 2,000 troops in Iraq and about 900 in northern Syria. And the Pentagon says it's recorded dozens of attacks, well over 90 on its forces in these two countries in recent weeks by Iranian-backed groups. And Ruth, what is the Iraqi government saying about these airstrikes that the U.S. has conducted on its soil? Well, the Iraqi prime minister's office came out with quite a 
harshly worded statement condemning the US airstrikes. These strikes apparently killed one militiaman, but also wounded at least 18 other people, including the Iraqi government says some civilians and Iraqi police. And they called the strikes a clear hostile act and said they quote, undermine the bilateral relations between Iraq and the US. The complexity here is that the Iraqi government is really struggling to balance the ties it has to both the US and to Iran. And the Iraqi government is warning that these types of exchanges of fire between the US and Iran are destabilizing for the country. And you know, Juana, it's not just happening in Iraq. We've got Houthi militias from Yemen that are linked to Iran firing on ships in the Red Sea. The US is now leading a naval coalition to try to defend these ships. And then you have Israel and the Lebanese militia Hezbollah, which is also backed by Iran, trading fire almost daily. And that's led to the evacuation of thousands of civilians on both sides of that Lebanese-Israel border. Is this something that could spiral out of control and lead to confrontation between the U.S. and Israel on one side against Iran? Well, concern about that has really gone up since Iran says Israel killed a senior advisor in Iran's Revolutionary Guards, the IRGC, in Syria this week. You know, Iranian state media have quoted both the president of Iran and the IRGC as saying that Israel will, quote, pay the price for his killing. For now, analysts seem to think that neither Israel nor the US nor Iran really wants to see this spiral into a bigger conflict. So far, these attacks and responses have been relatively limited, um, but this is an extremely volatile situation and it could easily spiral out of control. NPR's Ruth Sherlock, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. On Wall Street, stocks ended on an upswing today. The Dow and the S&P ticked up 0.4 percent. NASDAQ gained half a percent. In local business news, the average price of a gasoline of gas in Massachusetts dropped three cents in the past week, despite rising gas prices nationally. Today's statewide average stands at 3.23 a gallon, according to AAA. That's 17 cents lower than a month ago. Outside of Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket, the Boston area has the highest gas prices in the state. The Springfield area has the lowest. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Sunday, December 31st is your last chance to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. It'll be cloudy with some fog tonight. We'll have lows around 40 degrees. Upper 40s tomorrow with cloudy skies. Thursday looks rainy and around 50 degrees. A chance of rain Friday, otherwise mostly cloudy, and we'll see highs that day in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In Gaza, the World Health Organization says that disease may ultimately kill more people than direct military action. The group says rates of infectious diseases are, quote, soaring. Already, over 100,000 cases of diarrhea have been reported. NPR's Ari Daniel has this story about the efforts to spot and prevent outbreaks in an increasingly desperate situation. In times of war and of peace, tracking illnesses is crucial for keeping a population healthy. Rick Brennan is a regional emergency director with the WHO. It's a way of detecting the emergence of diseases that can result in an epidemic very, very quickly. Public health experts told me that before the war, despite the Israeli blockade, Gaza's health system was doing a pretty good job. Solid vaccination rates, three dozen hospitals, and effective disease surveillance. There was a reasonably good system to pick up cases of infectious diseases, to transfer the specimens, to test them in the laboratories, and then implement control measures. But since the October 7th Hamas attack, that system, along with the rest of Gaza's health infrastructure, has crumbled amidst Israel's bombardment and ground offensive. That's because Israel has accused Hamas of harboring fighters and weapons in and around hospitals and under them in tunnels, putting them in the line of fire. The WHO says only a quarter of Gaza's hospitals are partially functional. Tahrir al-Sheikh is a pediatrician in Gaza. She was working at al-Nasr Children's Hospital until the war displaced her to the south, where she's been offering medical help. She spoke with our producer, Anas Baba. We used to culture bacteria in Gaza, prescribe medication based on the results. Now, we can't do cultures or anything and the infections are spreading. She's seeing brutal cases of diarrhea. I treated a four-month-old baby who had 20 bowel movements in a day. Along with a torrent of respiratory diseases. I've had cases that didn't respond to any treatment, but I can't say they have COVID. I can't diagnose it because I don't have the equipment. All this disease is being accelerated by the brew of conditions inside Gaza right now. Marwan al-Homs directs the Muhammad Yusuf al-Najjar Hospital in Rafah. Wherever there's overcrowding, these epidemics exist, inside shelters, even in tiny apartments where the number of inhabitants is 35 people. Plus, there's the colder winter weather and a lack of clean water, sanitation, and proper nutrition, services that are difficult to secure under Israel's near-total siege of Gaza. It's just sort of a cauldron of possibility of infectious disease. Amber Alian is deputy program manager for Doctors Without Borders in the Palestinian territories. If you have no access to antibiotics because you can't get to the doctor, then something that's so simple to treat can turn into something quite deadly. This really just is an infectious disaster in waiting. Which the WHO says could endanger even more lives than combat. So global health groups are racing to ramp up disease surveillance efforts in Gaza to avoid a cholera outbreak like in Syria or Haiti or a measles outbreak like in Somalia. A WHO official recently traveled from Jerusalem to Gaza to bring rapid diagnostic tests for hepatitis and cholera. They're hoping to resuscitate one or two of the local laboratories in Gaza that did pathogen screening before. In addition, says Rick Brennan, We are looking at options to even bring a mobile laboratory from outside. 
Meanwhile, Brennan says he's relieved that some of the really terrible diseases, like measles or cholera, haven't surfaced yet in Gaza, in part due to pre-war vaccinations. If we get an influenza outbreak into those massively overcrowded shelters, if we've got Shigella dysentery, that could rip through a community very quickly. And to be honest, you know, I'm grateful that we've got to this point. We've got increased rates, but we haven't had a deadly outbreak yet. Whether that good fortune lasts isn't certain, but health experts say testing and surveillance are crucial for identifying the first handful of cases of something sinister, ideally while it can still be contained. Ari Daniel, NPR News. Some indigenous chefs are now using mainly ingredients that are native to North America. As Elizabeth Caldwell with KWGS in Tulsa, Oklahoma reports, these chefs are determined to show the benefits of indigenous cuisine. This is kind of where we stock all of our goodies. In her pantry in Tulsa, Cherokee chef Nico Albert Williams is showing off her supply of wild rice. She has several tubs that she bought directly from the Red Lake Band of Chippewa in Minnesota. You know, they go out in a canoe and they have uh, canes and they knock the rice into the canoe. After the rice is emptied out of the canoe, it's parched over a wood fire. They toast it and roast it, and that's how they dry it and get it um, ready to store. There's some other prizes in her pantry, hominy from a Haudenosaunee farmer in South Carolina and Yopon holly tea, which comes from one of the only caffeinated plants in North America. Yopon holly is a traditional ingredient in a lot of our medicines. When you're making teas and things like that, it's, it's kind of going to be the next big thing. Today, the wild rice is important. Albert Williams, who is a caterer, uses it in a lot of different dishes. And I might even add just a scotch more oil. She starts to saute some dried cranberries with mushrooms, then adds cooked wild rice to the pan and liquid left over from boiling it. So the the technical term for that is that we're deglazing the pan. The liquid helps loosen tasty brown bits off the bottom of the skillet and plumps up the dried cranberries. So like the cranberry juice mixes with that rice cooking liquid, mixing with the juice from the mushrooms, and it's really creating like this really beautiful little sauce in the pan. She piles the filling into lettuce wraps. These appetizers are featured at a gathering sponsored by the University of Tulsa to showcase indigenous foods and indigenous chefs. Here, she serves the wraps on plates made of pressed palm leaves that can be composted. Because it's all there's nothing added to it. It's just a leaf. Albert Williams takes the stage to tell the audience why she started using ingredients like wild rice. She didn't grow up eating these foods, she says. But as she gained experience as a chef, she started to appreciate the benefits. We have all of these health disparities in our communities, but those health disparities are not just in the indigenous community. They are countrywide. People are, are suffering from these things. And the ways that we heal ourselves also heal the planet when we make those good decisions. Like eating foods that grow around us, which she says is the heart of indigenous cooking. Another chef at the gathering is Sean Sherman. He grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, watching his community eat government canned fruits and vegetables. Then he became a chef. Just working really hard, learning about all the foods, learning about a lot of Eurocentric foods, and then getting to a point of realizing the complete absence of indigenous anything out there, and then starting to work towards that. 
Today, he runs a restaurant in Minneapolis called Awamni, which roughly means place of the falling, swirling water. So we took away colonial ingredients, removing dairy, wheat flour, cane sugar, beef, pork, chicken, really focusing on the bounty that we have around us. His menu instead has venison, bison, corn, sweet potatoes, and pumpkin custard. When thinking about food, Sherman says people should appreciate what nature has to offer. The first step, he says, is getting outside. Creating a relationship with the plants, with the trees, like finding the indigenous names for those plants and those trees, and just seeing the world differently. For these indigenous chefs, seeing the world differently is part of their recipes. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Caldwell in Tulsa. It's NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Parents, join us January 8th at City Space for a conversation with Jack Zhang, a chef and stay-at-home dad whose viral videos of cooking for his two-year-old son have inspired a new cookbook. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Clouds tonight and tomorrow. Highs tomorrow in the upper 40s. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off. Integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting, where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com.